Let's open our Bibles. We're looking at Psalm chapter 2. And as we get into the Psalms, you might recall a couple of weeks ago, I said, I want to start challenging us into scripture memory. So last month, as we were going through Jesus' conversations, we were memorizing John 3, 16 through 18. Now, I'm not going to ask for a show of hands because I, I might just feel bad if I see the hands raised, but I'm hoping that you'll adopt that as a practice in your life. And it doesn't have to be anything crazy. Uh, this series, I think we should memorize Psalm 1 together. Okay, we have about 12 weeks in this series. So if you work on one verse of Psalm 1 per week, you will have it memorized in six weeks. And then you will be like that student that gets way ahead of the game, the teacher's pet. You'll have like half of this series where you'll have it memorized, which I think will be good for you. Remember, Psalm 1 is the gateway to the Psalms. It's an important Psalm. Uh, so if we understand the implications of Psalm 1, we're going to better interact with the rest of the Psalms. Do you remember your first job? Okay, what about your first full-time job? Uh, my, my first full-time job was with U-Haul when I was working in college. I uh, climbed the ranks there. I started off as uh, a moonlighter position, 20 hours per week, customer service representative. And within two years, I, I climbed the ranks to full-time assistant manager of the store. It was pretty cool. I'll tell you, that job taught me a lot. I think I'm a better pastor today because of that job. It taught me about people. It taught me more than I ever wanted to know about moving. It taught me the difference that a boss can make to a work environment. The, the boss that hired me, and I'm being kind here when I say this, he did not want to be there. He was not interested in the store. The store was a paycheck to him. He didn't care about increasing sales. He didn't care about training me. Uh, I remember when I got into my position, it was like, here's like a couple of things, now go and figure it out yourself. I would be in the store, manning the store all by myself, uh, and you come up to crossroads when you're working with customers where you're like, you know, I don't know how I should respond to this. I need to ask the manager a question. I would go on boss expeditions looking for him, often finding him in the back of a truck smoking a cigarette. It was tough. I remember within the first two weeks on the job, he put me on Sundays by myself, opening and closing the store. And Saturday and Sunday happened to be the two busiest days of the week. It was a great job. I learned a lot. Well, this boss decided that AutoZone presented much better opportunities. So he transitions away from U-Haul, and we get a new boss in for a while. It's the district vice president. He was a great boss. He really cared about what was happening at the center. He wanted to increase sales. Uh, when he came into the center, we got busy. We started cleaning out all the cobwebs in the corner, painting the store again, making it look beautiful. And I have to tell you, in a work environment, that's actually good. It makes you feel productive. It makes you feel like you're doing something valuable. He taught us things about the organization. He um, was fair. 
He was kind with his words. He recognized individual contributions. I'm telling you, the boss makes a dramatic difference. And I know after church at coffee, you guys are going to just swarm me with your stories because we all have them. Now, as far as the Bible is concerned, it answers life's biggest questions. And one of the biggest questions that the Bible answers about life is, why is the world not the way that it's supposed to be? And one of the answers that the Bible gives us on that question has to do with our view of authority. Who's in charge? You? Me? Sometimes I feel like it might be my kids. <laughs> President? Who's in charge? Who's in authority? Now, remember, Psalm 1 is the gateway to the Psalms, but I would also suggest that Psalm 2 is part of the gateway. In fact, you can think of Psalm 1 and Psalm 2 as two posts that create a gateway to the rest of the Psalter. And remember, Psalm 1's asking the question, what is your source of truth by which you make decisions for your life? Is it the people around you or is it God's revelation, his word? Psalm 2 is asking a, a very big question as well. Who do you view as your authority? Who's in charge? Let's listen to what the psalmist says. Why do the nations rage and the peoples plot in vain? The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against the anointed, saying, let us burst their bonds apart and cast away their cords from us. He who sits in heaven laughs. The Lord holds them in derision. Then he will speak to them in his wrath and terrify them in his fury, saying, As for me, I have set my king on Zion, my holy hill. I will tell of the decree. The Lord said to me, You are my son. Today I have begotten you. Ask of me and I will make the nations your heritage and the ends of the earth your possession. You shall break them with a rod of iron and, and dash them in pieces like a potter's vessel. Now therefore, O kings, be wise, be warned, O rulers of the earth. Serve the Lord with fear and rejoice with trembling. Kiss the son, lest he be angry and you perish in the way. For his wrath is quickly kindled. Blessed are all who take refuge in him. Now let's unpack this psalm. And, and the way we can do it is by understanding that there are four movements throughout this psalm. The first movement is the first three verses. The world rages. The second movement is God laughs. And he installs his son. The third movement is that the son asserts his right to rule. And then the fourth is that God invites us to enjoy his rule. So if you think of it in those four movements, you will get to the heart of what this psalm is telling us. Now, it begins with a big why question. Why do the nations rage 
and plot in vain. In those first three verses, there are four verbs of conspiracy that are described to us. You have raging and plotting and setting themselves against and taking counsel together. And the psalmist, as he's kind of looking at this activity and this behavior that is centered around God's throne and God's rule, he is perplexed. He's like, why do they even bother? What's the point? What's the purpose here? Uh, One commentator explains, he says, it's not that they plot with any design or purpose, but rather that they react emotionally to God's rule. So here we get right to the heart of the matter, right to the heart of Psalm 2. This is more than just a picture of the nation of Israel being surrounded by these nations that are conspiring against Israel, seeking to overthrow Israel. No, this is actually much bigger than that. This is a picture of the human condition, the human bent that rebels against God and rebels against God's rule. Why is the world not the way it's supposed to be? Well, the Bible says the reason is is because humanity has rejected God's leadership. He's the boss. He's the one in charge. And humanity says, why should he be in charge? Why can't I be in charge? Now, you may be asking yourself the question, well, how does that manifest itself today? How do we see people rebelling against God? And I say this morning, how much time do you have? I mean, I could spend a whole series describing this to you. But I want to give you two $10 words that describe some worldview assumptions that I would suggest are ubiquitous, meaning it's pervasive throughout the culture. And the two worldview terms are the first is autonomy, and the second one is anti-authoritarianism. Now, what do those words mean? Well, autonomy describes this concept where I believe that I'm an island unto myself. I've got this. I know what's best for my life. I know how to operate my life. As we like to say here in New England, I'm all set. I'm all set. Now, anti-authoritarianism is actually closely associated with that idea. And this is where I hold a basic suspicion towards those who exercise authority. All authority is suspect. Uh, We like to quote Lord Acton, who says that power tends to corrupt and absolute power corrupts absolutely. When I look at someone in charge, they're, you know, basically guilty until proven innocent. I have my questions of them. I'm a little cynical about their decision-making process. Clearly, they don't have my best interests in mind. And, and some of that comes from you know, baggage that we have had over the years where leaders have been questionable. We even tell ourselves that, you know what? It would just be better if everyone was in charge. Well, let me respond to that with this. If everyone's in charge, who's in charge? No one. You know what we call that? Anarchy. 
Everyone does what is right in their own eyes. Now think about the, those two worldview assumptions. What does that do with my relationship with God? How might that impact how I relate to God? Well, first, if I'm an island unto myself, I don't need God. I don't need him. In fact, I'd be better off if God just let me alone and let me do what I want to do on my island. Of course, you know, sometimes it's nice to have exotic spiritual things flown in. Um, I like to enjoy them from time to time. But otherwise, I'm good, God. I've got this. And what about this other issue with authority? Well, the issue with authority goes really deep because if I'm suspect of authority in general, Who's the ultimate source of authority? Well, it's God. And now I find myself in this position where I believe that God needs to answer me and, and justify his existence to me and justify his decisions to me. And when I strike a posture like that with God, what's really happening underneath the surface is I'm saying, God, I'd do a better job at being boss than you. I'd be the best boss. You see, Psalm 2 is telling us that we have this whole authority thing screwed up. The psalmist is saying, if that's the posture you take towards God, why are you bothering? Why are you raging against that which is? God is God. He's in control. He's in charge. What are you going to gain by raging against him? And notice what God's response is to this. Let's look at that again, verses 4 through 6. It says, he who sits in the heavens laughs. Now, that's not a nervous, you know, slight chuckle where God's just kind of like, <laughs> no, this is a belly laugh. This is like, <laughs> You're kidding me, right? <laughs> the Lord holds them in derision. Then he will speak to them in his wrath and terrify them in his fury, saying, As for me, I have set my king on Zion, my holy hill. Now, interestingly enough, this is the only instance in all the Bible where we are told that God laughs. When the creature shakes their fist at the creator, God laughs. Why? Because there is a vast gulf between God and us. Uh, the, the book of Isaiah describes that gulf like this. The nations are like a drop from a bucket and are accounted as the dust on the scales. Behold, he takes up the coastlands like fine dust. We're not at his level he is high and exalted and enthroned with power that is outside of this world, and, and we are not. And if I think that I would make a better boss, then guess what? I'm going to have a big problem with this God. I'm going to find myself standing in opposition to him because after all, you know, God can't let me come in and take over his job. How would you feel at your work environment if someone came in and tried to take over your job? You wouldn't like it. So what Psalm 2 is 
suggesting is we need to take a posture shift when it comes to this whole authority thing with God. Because if I'm standing against him, if I'm rebuffing his leadership, well, it really puts me in this awkward position. However, if I find myself accepting reality, that God's in charge and I'm not, he's the boss, I'm not, he's God, I'm not, then I get the benefits of God's power and his authority and his might. Think about what we're seeing right now. The nations are conspiring and God is laughing and he is sitting, meaning he is unflinched. He's not concerned. What if I find myself on the side of this God? Well, think about a lot of the things in the world that have you concerned right now. Do you think, for example, that God is glued to the television watching all the economic you know, uh, thought processes about a, a looming recession and, and how things are going to go in the economy? Is God like glued to that television, biting his nails, hoping that it all works out okay? Or is he watching all of the media week in and week out with these geopolitical issues, these geopolitical concerns where, you know, Vladimir Putin is making threats of nuclear confrontation and you look at the South China Sea and you see tension building up there. Is God like worried of nuclear with, uh, because of nuclear bombs or, or the invasion of Taiwan? I don't think so. What about at the 5,000-foot level? What about at the things that concern us daily? What about our anxieties, our fears, our depressions? What about bills? What about relational tensions? What about medical concerns? Or for our graduate college decisions, future plans? Does he sweat those things? See, we find ourselves in an awkward position if we try to be the little CEO of our own little three-foot island. And Psalm 2 is saying, get past that. Let God be God of your life. And what you get if you let God be God is you get a change in a focus, a change in outlook of the world. And sometimes that's all it takes to get us off of fearful things, anxious things, and on to better things. I was reading um, Sinclair Ferguson. He was talking about a, a certain Dr. Williams that was a physician in London in the 19th century, and he was renowned for helping cure people of mild depression. Now, here was one of his strategies that he liked to employ. He would send them off to Scotland for a special consult with a specialist, and what they would do is they would get in their carriage or buggy or whatever, and they would spend multiple days getting to Scotland. And when they would arrive in Scotland, they would find out that this guy did not exist. So what happens? Well, they get back into that coach or buggy, and they spend the next three days finally crafting their words as they're about to confront Dr. Williams and give him a piece of their mind. But here's what happened. They were no longer depressed because they were furious. <laughs> Sometimes 
You need a change of focus to get your attention, to change your mind. And that's what verse 4 does in this psalm for the faithful. God stays seated. God laughs. God's in control. Guess what, church? You can relax. Now, Interestingly enough, we come to verse 6, and the sovereign God pronounces a decree. As for me, I have set my king on Zion, my holy hill. This is quite a surprising response to the nations laughing at God. First, he, instead of kind of directly confronting them in that, he installs a king. And secondly, it says that he announces that this king will set up a worldwide kingdom in a property called Zion. Now, if you're unfamiliar with Zion, the first time that it is mentioned in the Bible is 2 Samuel 5-7, and this is when King David is coming in, and he takes over this plot of land from the Jebusites. Zion is puny. It's like 11 acres of real estate on the southeastern ridge of Jerusalem. So get what God is doing right now. God is saying that he will establish his kingdom in this world on a tiny banana-shaped piece of land that is at the periphery of all things epicenter, and he's going to use this backwater place called Judah to bring about his worldwide kingdom. It's incredible when you think about it. And God loves to do these kind of things in the scriptures. I mean, he loves to make his biggest power moves through movements that appear weak and absurd to the rest of the world. You know, um, my son, Zach, and I, we've been getting into chess quite a bit lately. I shared with you perhaps last week that he has this 3D printer, and right now we are working aggressively to create this really cool chess set together. As you know, with chess, if you've ever played the game, you can get, like, competitive, and we've gotten competitive. He's beaten me a couple of times. I can't let that stand. <laughs> so what we do is we like to go on YouTube and watch the really good chess players and analyze them. why are they doing what they do right now. One of my favorite chess players right now to watch is Magnus Carlsen. Are you all familiar with him? He is perhaps the greatest chess player who has ever lived. And one of his favorite strategies in chess is to sacrifice his queen. Now, if you don't know anything about chess, I can't help you here, but <laughs> sacrificing your queen is like, here's my best player, have it. And he does that because the people get focused on the queen, it leaves a back door to the king, and he swoops in and takes care of business. Magnus Carlsen is a master of the endgame. And guess what? God is the grandmaster of the endgame. He calls out, I'm setting up my king. He's going to operate in Zion. The nations are looking at that like, Zion, give me a break. All the while, God's setting his strategy in motion, and it is going to bring about the end game. Now, when you think about this king that is described in Psalm 2, for the record, I do not believe that the king described in verse 6 of this text represents a king living in this time period in the line of David. I don't think it's talking about David. I don't think it's talking about Solomon, Rehoboam, Josiah, any of those kings. 
Uh, one commentator, James Johnston, says it like this, with the worldwide scope of Psalm 2, these words fit the kings in Jerusalem like NFL pads a little boy. We're talking about someone that's on a much bigger level than King David here. And as you look at the scriptures, there's only one person that can wear the NFL pads, and that's the Lord Jesus Christ. In fact, as you look at the New Testament, Psalm 2 is one of the most quoted psalms in the New Testament. They appealed to it often to argue that Jesus was the king described in these verses. They actually appeal to Psalm 2 in Acts chapter 4 as they are explaining why Jesus was crucified. It's interesting. They have this prayer session after being persecuted. They pray through Psalm 2. Why did the nations rage? Why did they conspire? Why did they plot? And then they say these words in Acts 4, 27 and 28. For truly in this city there were gathered against your holy servant Jesus whom you anointed, both Herod and Pontius Pilate, along with the Gentiles and the peoples of Israel, to do whatever your hand and your plan had predestined to take place. Church, this psalm is about Jesus. And as you make your way through it, you're going to notice what the narrator, the psalmist, is doing. He's handing a microphone around. He begins by handing the microphone to the nations. We don't want to be chained. We don't want to be fettered. Then he gives the microphone to God the Father. God the Father says, I am stalling my king in Zion, and I'm laughing at your protests. And then he hands the microphone to the pre-incarnate Christ. So listen to what Christ says. I will tell of the decree the Lord said to me, you are my son. Today I have begotten you. Ask of me and I will make the nations your heritage and the ends of the earth your possession. You shall break with them, them with a rod of iron and dash them in pieces like a potter's vessel. Now, what is Christ saying here? Well, I suggest that he is appealing to his right to rule based upon three things. Thing number one, my identity. Number two, his destiny. And number three, his authority. And as you go through the psalm, you see all three of those alluded to in his right to rule. What is his identity? Well, it says, you are my son. Jesus is the son of God. As we look at the gospels, we actually see the father overtly say that twice in the gospels. The first time is when Jesus is baptized. The second time is when he is transfigured. This identity of sonship is so essential to our understanding of the person of Jesus. Because as the son, Jesus is connected horizontally to humanity, but also connected vertically to God. So vertically, he's close to God. He knows God. He is a son who knows his father. He's subordinate to God. He obeys the father as a son obeys a father. And because he is a son, he's also the rightful heir to the kingdom of God. Now horizontally, it also 
points to the fact that Christ shares closely in his identity with us. He is the king who represents his people. He embodies us in himself so completely that scripture says some incredible things. It says that Christ's obedience is our obedience. I don't know, last time I checked, but no one in this room is perfect, right? Uh, I don't think anyone wants to argue me off of that ledge. But what is God's moral standard to be made right with him? Well, it's perfection, right? I, I would have to stand before God in his holiness and his righteousness and say, God, I've never committed a sin. I've never done wrong in your eyes. And last time I checked, none of us could stand before God and say that. So then what is the Bible's answer to that? The Bible's answer is Jesus. He lived the perfect life I couldn't live. He died in my place. Another $10 word, substitutionary atonement. Jesus bore my sins upon the cross in my place. He was resurrected, and I get to share in his resurrection. He ascends into eternal life. I get to share in that eternal life with him. As the son of God, Jesus can bring about salvation to us because of who he is. We also see his destiny and his authority going hand in hand. As the Messiah King, Christ has jurisdiction over every square inch of the planet. In fact, I would say the universe. But it's one thing to have jurisdiction, and it's another thing to have the authority and the power to hold authority over that jurisdiction. I like what Abraham Kuyper, the Dutch uh, politician and theologian, famously said. He said this, that there's not a square inch in the whole domain of our human existence over which Christ, who is sovereign over all, does not cry, mine. It's his. And he's not shy about it. He's not messing around. He's not the boss that comes in and says, oh, you guys do whatever you want, and I'll, you know, I'll be cool. No, he's like, I'm the king. I'm the son of God. I own it all. And I'm not afraid to exercise my authority. It kind of reminds me of Theodore Roosevelt, right? His big stick diplomacy where he comes in and he says, speak softly, but carry a big stick. Christ carries a big stick. But how do I react to that? How do I live in light of that? Well, verses 10 through 12 gives us that answer. Therefore, O kings, be wise be warned, O rulers of the earth. Serve the Lord with fear. Rejoice with trembling. Kiss the Son, lest he be angry and you perish in the way. For his wrath is quickly kindled. Blessed are all who take refuge in him. We get two words from these verses, a word of warning and a word of blessing. The word of warning is a word of wisdom. Let God be God. God is God. He has the right to be God. He has the right to exercise his authority as God. Just like you have the right when someone comes onto your property who you do not want to be there to have them removed as a trespasser, God has the right to be God. Why do you get to remove that person as a trespasser? Because 
you own the property. God owns everything. He is God. I am not. Kiss the sun is a sign of submission and respect in this psalm. I love that scene in um, the children's classic, The Lion, Witch, and the Wardrobe, when Susan and Mr. Beaver are having a conversation, and Susan is just becoming aware of this majestic Christ figure named Aslan. And she says, oh, is he quite safe? And Mr. Beaver's response is great. Who said anything about safe? Of course he isn't safe. But he's good. He's the king, I tell you. That's the Bible's picture of Christ in a nutshell. He's not safe. He's not tameable. And trust me when I say this, you don't want to worship a God that is like that. Uh, we can take God and marginalize him in our worldview. And if you want to live beyond the muck, you've got to unmuck your view of who God is. C.S. Lewis, when he was describing kind of like the construct of God that people wish God was like in our day and age, he described it like this. He said, what would really satisfy us would be a God who said, of anything we happen to like doing, what does it matter so long as they are contented? We want, in fact, not so much a father in heaven as a grandfather in heaven. A senile benevolence who, as they say, like to see young people enjoying themselves. And whose plan for the universe was simply that it might truly be said at the end of each day, a good time was had by all. Let me just say this, you might like spending time with Grandpa God, but you're not going to like conform your life to what he says. You don't take his wisdom very seriously. Oh, Grandpa's dated. He doesn't understand what the world looks like today. He doesn't understand. If I have that view of God, I'm not going to follow him. I need to elevate my view. I need to give in to the impulse of the psalm that says, kiss the son, show him the reverence due to his identity, due to his office, due to his authority, due to his knowledge and wisdom. Let me just give you some straight facts about Jesus. Fact number one, he expects us to follow him without looking back. Jesus may call us to do dangerous things, Jesus is a danger to his enemies. Jesus won't be boxed in. Jesus tends to disrupt our lives. Jesus doesn't care about making our lives comfortable or predictable. Jesus himself is unpredictable. Here's the thing. Be okay with that. He's in charge. But there's a blessing on the other side of this wisdom it says, blessed are those who take refuge in him. Remember that word blessing is talking to us about finding satisfaction, finding fulfillment, finding joy in this world. When I get 
over the script that Satan has written of God, that he started speaking in the Garden of Eden when he said that he knows that when you eat the fruit, you'll be like him. When I stop viewing him as a constrainer and a manipulator and a controller, and I start seeing him for who he really is, a life giver, a sustainer, a provider, a protector, guess what? You get off the island and you get into this great big universe. You see, this psalm above everything is not a warning. It's an invitation. And Jesus, the king, gave us this invitation in Matthew chapter 11. He said, come to me, all who labor and heavy laden. You're tired because you're resisting what is natural and what is right. When you come over to Jesus' leadership, I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you. Learn from me. For I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. Lord, this morning, as we look at Psalm 2, this second post, this second piece of the gateway to the Psalter, we recognize that you are God and we are not. We recognize that you are the old wise one, the old powerful one, the eternal one. And yet a God who comes to us in the form of sending your son into this world to be our king, to be our savior. Lord, we want to conform our lives to your purposes and to your will. We want to grow and become more like Jesus. We want to be all that you intend for us to be. I pray that over each one here this morning, Lord, continue to fashion us and shape us and work in us. In your name we pray.